The views expressed on TMI with Aldous Tyler are not necessarily those of WSUMFM, the University of Wisconsin in Madison, or the Board of Regents. Oh no, my friends, the views for the next hour are all mine. December 11th, 2020. Due to some technical difficulties at my studio, this is going to be a best of episode from last Friday, December 4th. Please enjoy and we will be back live next week. We seem to have survived the election. After all, it was um, just over four weeks ago that uh, the election occurred. You know, uh, and um, exactly four weeks after that, this last Tuesday here on December 1st, Attorney General Bill Barr said that the Justice Department and the FBI had not uncovered voter fraud at a level that would alter the 2020 election results. Barr told the Associated Press to date, we have not seen fraud on a scale that could have affected a different outcome in the election. Now, of course, Rudy Giuliani and uh, other uh, lawyers for Donald Trump, uh, such as Jenna Ellis, rebuked that in a statement. They're, they're, well, with all due respect to the attorney general, there hasn't been a semblance of a Department of Justice investigation. We've, we've gathered ample evidence of illegal voting in at least six states, which uh, they've not examined. <laughs> uh Interestingly, um, Attorney General Barr appeared to to, uh, be uh, ready for this in advance. He preempted that argument in his interview with the Associated Press, uh, saying the court system, rather than the Department of Justice, is the best venue for the Trump campaign to pursue its legal claims. He said, there's a growing tendency to use the criminal justice system as sort of a default fix-all. And when people don't like something, they want the Department of Justice to come in and investigate. He added, most claims of fraud are very particularized to a particular set of circumstances or actors or conduct and are not systemic allegations. Now, that statement from Barr, one of Trump's most stalwart defenders, could draw the president's ire in the waning days of his administration. Uh, I mean, it would be funny, but for the last month of the administration, we might have a different attorney general. Um, It's especially significant 
given that Barr spent months fanning the president's conspiracy theories about how an increase in mail-in voting this year could lead to a fraudulent election outcome. I mean, specifically, Barr speculated that foreign countries could tamper with mail-in ballots, a claim that election experts and U.S. intelligence officials found no evidence to support. In October, just two months ago, Barr drew backlash for authorizing federal prosecutors who suspect election-related offenses to take public investigative steps, even if those steps could alter the outcome of the election. Barr's change to long-standing Department of Justice policy prompted the resignation of Richard Pilger, the head of the department's election crimes unit. Now, the Department of Justice was also criticized for its handling of a case in September involving a small number of military absentee ballots in Luzerne County, Pennsylvania. The department released two short and ambiguous statements saying ballots had been discarded in Luzerne County, sparking confusion and inflaming conspiracy theories about voter fraud. Former prosecutors and election experts said the Department of Justice's decision to release information about an ongoing investigation and mention who the ballots were cast for was highly unusual and undermined voters' rights to a secret ballot. Shortly after, the Department of Justice and Luzerne County officials said the error was inadvertent and appeared to be the result of under-trained workers mistaking ballot envelopes for envelopes containing absentee ballot applications. In other words, <laughs> they said, uh, oops, uh, that was a mistake. Apparently, these people didn't understand the difference between empty absentee ballot envelopes and envelopes that actually contained absentee ballot applications. Since November 3rd, the Trump campaign and Republican officials have filed more than two dozen, that's more than 24, election lawsuits across the country and haven't won a single case. Not one out of over 24 cases have been won. The six battleground states that decided the election, Arizona, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Nevada, and, hey, Wisconsin, also certified their election results, cementing President-elect Joe Biden's victory. Meanwhile, Trump has lashed out at administration officials and Republican lawmakers who refused to support his allegations of a rigged election. The Republican lawyers Lynn Wood and Sidney Powell have also claimed, without any credible evidence, that the election results were hacked or rigged with computers that erased or swapped votes. Trump and his allies have also targeted an election vendor, Dominion Voting Systems, with baseless claims that the company was responsible for switching, as they said, votes from Trump to Biden, and accused the company of having ties to nefarious communist actors in Venezuela and Cuba. The Colorado-based company has, of course, denied all these allegations. It should be noted that in the case of the communist actors in Venezuela that Dominion Voting Systems was accused to have ties with, uh, one notable one has been dead for over six years. Not sure what they're talking about. In 2020, more than 90% of U.S. voters used hand-marked paper ballots ballot marking devices that produce a paper ballot, or voting machines with voter-verifiable paper receipts. 
Election experts also told Business Insider that overall, the 2020 election was the safest and most secure in U.S. history. Attorney General Barr similarly told the Associated Press that the federal government found no evidence that voting machines or voting systems were tampered with. Barr said, There's been one assertion that would be systemic fraud, and that would be the claim that machines were programmed essentially to skew the election results. And the DHS and Department of Justice have looked into that, and so far we haven't seen anything to substantiate that. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer on Tuesday predicted that Trump would oust Barr, as he's done with other officials who defied him. Schumer told reporters in Capitol Hill, I guess he's the next one to be fired. Barr met with Trump on Tuesday night, and a Department of Justice spokesperson tried to walk back the Attorney General's statements. Some media outlets have incorrectly reported that the department has concluded its investigation of election fraud and and announced an affirmative finding with no fraud in the election, the spokesperson told CBS. The the department will continue to receive and, and vigorously pursue all specific and credible allegations of fraud as expeditiously as possible. So, in other words, to try to make damage control, they are saying what the facts are is, is that you know, if they receive anything else that seems credible, they'll investigate it. They'll take a look at it. Um, and that the department hasn't said it's closed its investigation. However, what Attorney General Barr said definitively is that nothing, and he means nothing, that has been brought before the Department of Justice showed any signs of systemic voter fraud that would have anywhere near the kind of impact necessary to toss the election from Trump to Biden. Meanwhile, the uh, way that Attorney General Barr said it needed to be uh, focused on in order to seek, um, basically to seek uh, a change of um, what happened was the courts. Uh, Meanwhile, Trump has completely failed there. 24 plus 24 plus days in court and not a single one of them went Trump's way. Ladies and gentlemen, as of this moment, we are pretty much done. And like I said, it took four weeks. But unlike 2000, where there was one crucial state that could flip one way or the other and decide the entire thing, we had six states That decided the total fate. And that's just too much for one corrupt fascist to overturn. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice. Tumbling down the rabbit hole. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. On WSUM 91.7 FM in Madison. Hallelujah. My Savior, man. No one personal Jesus Christ. It's your cure for the common media. Airing every Friday at 5 p.m. Central. Podcasting every Monday evening. You like it? I think he likes it. Lots of more. Oh, yes. 
check out TMI, TMI, TMI.com for podcasts and all things TMI. I know Kung Fu. Show me. Yeah.
back, TMI with Aldous Tyler. Now, one of the great divides, unfortunately, in this country often comes between those who believe that there absolutely is nothing valid to anything religious and those who feel that there is a place in society for religion or spirituality. Um, Now, the biggest divide, of course, occurs when you wind up talking uh, between those who believe there should be no religion and those who believe religion should control everything. Clearly, those are the two extremes, and they're never going to get along, and I'm not going to pretend like they can. But it is interesting to note that not all rational thought about the spiritual or about the religious um, concludes that there can be no creator, that there can be no God. Now, I personally, uh, just so you know, um, have a belief that uh, that we ourselves, are, as human beings, are the creators of many spectacular and wondrous things, even things that go beyond uh, current explanation. However, um, I'm not here to talk about my own personal philosophy at this time, but one that I find delightful nonetheless. You see... A lot of the problems that people who think rationally uh, have with religion and spirituality is specifically with the character of an omniscient God like you have uh, present in the Christian Bible. The idea being is that many of the actions and the predilections that are ascribed to such a being, seem to be the same kind of insecurities and uh, pitfalls that one would have from being, you know, human. So, some time ago, back in the 1600s, Dutch philosopher Baruch Spinoza um, decided he was going to look seriously at the idea of what a benevolent divine creator who is omniscient, who was uh, omnipotent, and, um, you know, and again, truly benevolent, what would that point of view be? And he wrote down what he thought. Now, now, before I get into this, let me preface this by saying this exact version, the Spinoza version of God, is the one that Albert Einstein very famously said he ascribed to. So when people go and point to Albert Einstein as being a a great rationalist and a great scientist who believed in God, let's be clear, this is the God Einstein preferred. That God said, stop praying. I want you to go out into the world and enjoy your life. I want you to sing, have fun, and enjoy everything I've made for you. Now, think about that statement for a minute, because, again, if you are the creator, you want people to experience what you've created. You don't want them all holed up. You don't want them held back. You want your creations to live. What's the point of making them live if you don't want them to go out and enjoy their life? Uh, Next statement here. Stop going into those dark, cold temples that you built yourself and saying they are my house. My house is in the mountains, in the woods, rivers, lakes, beaches. That's where I live. And there I express my love for you. Now here, Spinoza 
is basically saying, look, let's be clear. Any building you've made that that's man-made, you know, and, and great. Wonderful that you did that, but don't say that's me. If you want to know what it's like to feel the creator, go amongst the creator's creations, which specifically he was saying is nature. It's the woods, the rivers, lakes, beaches, mountains. Um, that's where you can see what creation looks like, according to Spinoza's God. Uh, I personally, by the way, feel that cities and such are actually very natural because, well, human beings are part of nature and we uh, create cities and buildings as our kind of hives. But I, I again, I'm not going to get into that too heavily. I'm going to continue here. And remember, this is the same kind of God Albert Einstein found to be inspirational. Spinoza's God also says, stop blaming me for your miserable life. I never told you there was anything wrong with you or that you were a sinner or that your sexuality was a bad thing. Sex is a gift I've given you and with which you can express your love, your ecstasy, your joy. So don't blame me as God for everything that others have made you believe. So again, um, Baruch Spinoza here in the 1600s is very clearly noting that a, a deity that would be omniscient, omnipotent, and benevolent would have nothing to do with the uh, contraptions put in place by religion to make people feel guilty and bad. Specifically around sex and other things as well, but, but just generally, don't go blaming God for everything that others have made you believe because that's human beings that put that into place. Along those lines, Spinoza's God says, stop reading alleged sacred scriptures that have nothing to do with me. If you can't read me in a sunrise, in a landscape, in the look of your friends, in your son's eyes, you will find me in no book. So here is where we get down to the crux of it. And I very much agree with this. According to Spinoza, where you can read what a divine creator would be is in its creations and not just in the landscape, but in sunrise dynamic events. Also in your fellow people, in the look of your friends, in your son's eyes, he's telling you this Spinoza's God is saying that where you will find divine inspiration is in your fellow human beings and the love they have. Along those lines, the next thing Spinoza's God tells us is, stop asking me, will you tell me how to do my job? Stop being so scared of me. I do not judge you or criticize you, nor get angry or bothered. I am pure love. So again, the idea here is, rationally speaking, Spinoza was thinking, okay, if you're talking about some being that is omnipotent, omniscient, and benevolent, what would they be like? And he reasoned that if you were going to exist forever and you had all the power in the world and all the knowledge in the world and you were benevolent, then you would have to be pure love. You wouldn't be judgmental. That wouldn't be at all what 
You, you could even possibly be if you were to be benevolent plus those other uh, items. And, uh, next, uh, next quote on Spinoza's God, again, the God that Albert Einstein was comfortable with. He says, stop asking for forgiveness. There's nothing to forgive. If I made you, I filled you with passions, limitations, pleasures, feelings, needs, inconsistencies, and best of all, free will. Why would I blame you if you respond to something I put in you? How could I punish you for being the way you are if I'm the one who made you? Do you think I could create a place to burn all my children who behave badly for the rest of eternity? What kind of God would do that? And again, plainly, what's being said here is that when you rationally consider the idea of a benevolent, omnipotent, omniscient creator, none of that makes any sense. The whole punishment, the needing forgiveness, the burning in hell, none of that makes any sense. So it's not there. Continuing on. Respect your peers and don't give what you don't want for yourself. All I ask is that you pay attention in your life. Alertness is your guide. So right there, that's just basically saying, hey, look, so yeah, I created you. And so you don't need to feel uh, like you need forgiveness from me. Um, and you don't need to worry about burning in hell. But hey, I created everybody else too. So they're your peers. Every human being is your peer. And don't give what you don't want for yourself. That's the golden rule. Don't do unto others unless you want it, them to do that to you. And it's not so much a threat of if you do that, other people are going to do that to you, which sometimes can happen. That's more saying, just be cool about it, man. Be, as it says straight off at the end, pay attention in your life. Alertness is your guide. So be alert. Think about what it is you would want others to do when you are interacting with them and then treat them that way. He continues, my beloved, this life is not a test, not a step on the way, not a rehearsal, not a prelude to paradise. This life is the only thing here and now, and it is all you need. So again, trying to make sure that you aren't focused on trying to score points for a reward that isn't here. What creator would want that? Rationally speaking, Spinoza asked, what creator would want to create things, create life, and then have people spend that life trying so hard to make the next life better that they don't even get to see or know about until they get there? That made no sense to him at all. There was nothing rational about it. So, again, don't treat this as a rehearsal or a prelude to paradise right now. Right now, experience it. Enjoy it. It's all you need. To continue, Spinoza's God says, I have set you absolutely free. No prizes or punishments. No sins or virtues. No one carries a marker. No one keeps a record. You are absolutely free to create in your life. It's you who creates heaven or hell. Now here he's acknowledging that it's quite possible 
unfortunately, to make your life miserable or to make your life enjoyable um, just simply by how you respond to it. Now, I'm not going to start using this as a, a victim blame game. Clearly, some people are born in circumstances that are more miserable, miserable making than others by default. I get that. Not saying that's not the case. I'm saying Spinoza's God is saying, perfectly speaking, if all human beings acted this way, things would be fine. So basically saying straight off, you're absolutely free. You human beings are the ones that are creating your own heaven or your own hell. And this actually gets back to the idea that the human-based religions that used heaven and hell to try to keep people under control, that that was a human creation, not one that would be even remotely rational for a divine being that was benevolent to do. Spinoza's God continues, live as if there is nothing beyond this life, as if this is your only chance to enjoy, to love, to exist. Then you will have enjoyed the opportunity I gave you. And if there is an afterlife, rest assured, I won't ask if you behaved right or wrong. I'll ask, did you like it? Did you have fun? What did you enjoy the most? What did you learn? Again, Spinoza felt that if there was benevolence and it was omniscient, omnipotent benevolence, then that's what the creator would want to know. Did you enjoy what I created? What did you think? It's the same thing as a chef. Well, a nice chef. Um, when you eat their food, did you enjoy it? What did you enjoy the most? Or a teacher, what did you learn from that? Now, here's where things get interesting, in my opinion. The next thing up for the God of Spinoza, again, the one that Einstein found inspiring. He says, stop believing in me. Believing is assuming, guessing, and imagining. Now, I don't want you to believe in me. I want you to believe in you. I want you to feel me in you when you kiss your beloved, when you tuck in your little girl, when you caress your dog, when you bathe in the sea. Stop praising me. What kind of egomaniac God do you think I am? I'm bored with being praised. I'm tired of being thanked. Feeling grateful? Prove it by taking care of yourself, your health, your relationships, the world. Express your joy. That's the way to praise me. Stop complicating things and repeating as a parrot what you've been taught about me. Why do you need more miracles? So many explanations. The only thing for sure is that you are here, that you're alive, and that this world is full of wonders. So, in that closing bunch of statements there, Spinoza's God is saying that believing in a God in particular is silly. It, it basically, again, a rational, beneficial benevolent, if you will, omnipotent creator creates life and wants the, that life to go and enjoy what's there. Not to constantly be thinking up at it. He doesn't need that. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. This creator, he or she, pardon me, doesn't need any of that. That's the kind of thing 
that us human beings need, the, the validation, things like that. That's not the kind of thing an omnipotent, omniscient being would need, especially not a benevolent one. It doesn't need praise. Now, I'm very aware that many people in my audience are going to be uh, atheist, many of whom are atheist because they have suffered under um, restrictive religious ideals and concepts of God that they were told meant that God was a punisher, that God was a judger, that God was going to uh, get you, that God was going to make you burn in hell just for who you are and for what you were. Um, so I wanted to give this opportunity to explore for a moment rationally if there was such a thing as a beneficial, omnipotent, omniscient creator. What would that omnipotent, omniscient creator really be like? What would the dictates of such a being be? And would they be really dictates? Or would they simply be, live your life, be who you are, and please enjoy the creation I have made. That is the basic message of the God of Baruch Spinoza. And again, this is the God that a mind as great as Albert Einstein found inspiring. Not the God that says, oh, you're wrong, you're a sinner. No, the God that says, you can't be wrong, I made you. Maybe if we allowed our rational thoughts on what benevolence truly is, rewrite the history that we've created around the idea of divinity, we'd be a lot better off. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back. Yeah. 
Tyler. You may have noticed that it's sometimes difficult to 
be a journalist, or in my case, report on journalism, because there's a focus on trying to tell both sides of whatever story. And the struggle being that sometimes one side doesn't even want facts to be part of the conversation. Speaking on this, Jay Rosen wrote an article recently in the New York Review, that's newyorkbooks.com, nybooks.com, and the piece was called America's Press and the Asymmetric War for Truth. And underneath his byline, he writes, The Republican Party, now committed to minoritarian rule, not democracy, needs fictions to sustain its power, and that means a collision with honest journalism. Journalism, Jay writes, is a name for the job of reporting on politics, questioning candidates and officeholders, and alerting Americans to what is actually happening in their public sphere. He then puts in quotes, the press is the institution in which most journalism is done. The institution is what endures over time as people come into journalism and drift out of it. The coming confrontation can be summarized this way. The Republican Party is increasingly a minority party, or counter-majoritarian, as some political scientists like to put it. The beliefs and priorities that hold it together are opposed by most Americans, who on a deeper level do not want to be what the GOP increasingly stands for. A counter-majoritarian party cannot present itself as such and win elections outside of its dwindling strongholds, so it has to be counterfactual as well. It has to fight using fictions, making it harder to vote and harder to understand what the party is really about. Those are two parts of the same project. The conflict with honest journalism is structural. To be its dwindling self, the GOP has to also be at war with the press, unless, of course, the press folds under pressure. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. The Atlantic's Ron Brownstein uh, sees the same thing I see. In his recent article on why the 2020s could be as dangerous as the 1850s, Brownstein quotes several Republicans who admit what is happening. He says, The Democrats' coalition of transformation is now larger, even much larger, than the Republicans' coalition of restoration. With Trump solidifying the GOP's transformation into a white identity party, a nationalist party, not unlike parties you see in Europe, you can see the Democratic Party becoming the party of literally everyone else. And um, Republican behavior in recent years suggests that they share the antebellum South's determination to control the nation's direction as a minority. That's why they went to such lengths to deny Obama a Supreme Court pick and sacrificed everything to get Amy Coney Barrett on the court. It's evident in the flood of laws that the Republican states have passed over the past decade, making it more difficult to vote. And it's evident in the fervent efforts from the party to restrict access to mail-in voting this year. Add to that list interfering with the census, uh, crippling the post office. Uh, these events suggest to Brownstein, a journalist who has reported on politics for 37 years, that Republicans believe they have a better chance of maintaining power by suppressing the diverse new generations entering the electorate than by courting them. 
See, that's what a counter-majoritarian party has to do. Suppress voters, but also project fictions, like the proposition that voter fraud is rampant. It's an empirical question. Is there a lot of voter fraud in the United States? Does it affect elections? And the question has been answered, not just once, but many times. So here's what I mean by the conflict with honest journalism is structural. The GOP has to rely on fictions like voter fraud to make its case, and if the press wants to be reality-based, it has to reject that case. But how badly does the press want to be reality-based? How far is it willing to go? Forced into it by Trump's flood of falsehoods, journalists routinely fact-check statements like there is substantial evidence of voter fraud and declare them false, and that's good. But will they stop amplifying strategic falsehoods when powerful people continue to make them? Will they penalize politicians who come on TV to float fictions like that? Will the Sunday morning shows quit having them on? And will the press revise the mental image on which its habitual practices rest? Two roughly similar parties with different philosophies that compete for power by trying to capture uh, through public argument the American center, meaning the majority of voters, and thus win a mandate for the priorities they want to push through the system. On that buried picture of normal politics, the routines of political journalism are built. There are no routines purpose-built for a situation in which, as Ron Bernstein put it, a minority party, the GOP, is deepening its reliance on the most radically resentful white voters, as Democrats more thoroughly represent the nation's accelerating diversity. There's nothing in the playbook of the American press about how to cover a party that operates by trying to suppress votes rather than compete for them. Faced with these kinds of asymmetries, Journalists will have to decide where they stand. But the choice for a program like Meet the Press, a network like NPR, a newsroom like the New York Times, or a news service like the AP, is not which team to join, the Democrats or the Republicans. That's, that's not the choice. Anyone who puts it that way is trying to snow you. The choice, rather, is whether to continue with a system of bipartisan representation in which the two parties get roughly equal voice in the news because they are roughly equal contenders for a majority of votes, or whether to redraw their practices amid the shifting reality of American politics in which the GOP tries to control the system from a minority position, white nationalism for the base, plutocracy for the donor class, while the Democrats try to bring order to their unruly and slowly expanding majority. Uh, let, let, me, let me rephrase that a little bit. Basically, the GOP is trying to control the system from the idea of white nationalism and, of course, plutocracy for the uh, class of folks that are, you know, very, very rich. Uh, and the Democrats are trying to bring order to the um, slowly expanding majority, which, unfortunately for the Democrats, they also uh, uh, show fealty to the donor class and plutocracy, but they have the um, the expanding majority of people who have diversity going on there instead of the white nationalism end of things. The bipartisan fairy tale uh, versus adjustment to a shifted reality sounds like no choice at all. What self-respecting journalist would not side with depicting the world the way it is? It seems an easy call, right? 
Well, apparently it's not as easy as we might think. Um, in press criticism, an observation that, that stands true is that certain things that mainstream journalists do are not to serve the public, but to protect themselves against criticism. That's what he said, she said, reporting the both sides do it reflex and the balanced treatment of an unbalanced phenomenon are all about. In other words, there are plenty of mainstream journalists out there that rather than just telling the truth as they see it and reporting the facts on the ground, try to make sure they get covered, make sure they're protected by trying to build equivalencies that are generally false. On the other hand, reporting the news, holding power to account, and fighting for the public's right to know, these are the first principles of journalism, bedrock for sound practice. But protecting against criticism is not like that at all. It has far less legitimacy, especially when the criticism itself comes from bad faith actors, which is how the phrase working the refs got started. Political actors try to influence judgment calls by screeching about bias, whether the charge is warranted or not. Um, my favorite description of protecting against criticism comes from a former reporter for the Washington Post, uh, Paul Taylor. Back in 1990, he wrote a book about election coverage called See How They Run. Um, a particular quote from that, Sometimes I worry that my squeamishness about making sharp judgments for or against makes me unfit for the shamming world of daily journalism. Other times, I conclude that it makes me ideally suited for newspapering, certainly for the rigors and conventions of modern objective, in quotes, journalism. For I can dispose of my dilemmas by writing stories straight down the middle. I can search for the halfway point between the best and the worst that might be said about someone or some policy or idea and write my story in that fair-minded place. By aiming for that golden mean, I probably land near the best approximation of truth more often than if I were guided by any other set of com compasses, partisan, ideological, psychological, whatever. Yes, I'm seeking truth, but I'm also seeking refuge. I'm taking a pass on the toughest calls I face. That right there. I am seeking truth, but I'm also seeking refuge. Mm. Now, to me, these are some of the most important lines ever written about political reporting in the United States. Truth-seeking behavior is mixed with refuge-seeking behavior in the normal conduct of journalists who report on politics for the mainstream press. That's how we get reports uh, like this one from October 28th on NPR's Morning Edition, where they said, on the right, they're concerned about the integrity of mail-in ballots. They're hearing from President Trump, who is stoking these fears by claiming without evidence that the system is rife with fraud. And on the left, people are worried about another scenario. In their worst fears, Trump is ahead on election night, and either his campaign or his Justice Department tries to end vote counting prematurely. And disputes over vote counting could go on for days or weeks, so activists on both sides are making plans to mobilize. Okay, now, in that kind of journalism, the house style at NPR, the image of left and right with matching worries is refuge-seeking. That Trump is stoking fears by claiming without evidence that mail-in ballots are rife with fraud is certainly truth-telling and should have been told. The point is not that refuge-seeking necessarily injects falsehoods, but rather that it's designed to be protective. NPR, the fair-minded observer, stands between the two sides, endorsing the claims of neither. That's how the report is framed, symmetrically. 
But the underlying reality is asymmetric. Mail-in ballots are a safe and proven way to conduct an election. Fears on the right are manipulated emotion and whataboutism. Meanwhile, threatening statements from Trump like, must have final total on November 3rd, like he said, lend a frightening plausibility to the concerns of Democrats. The difference is kind of alluded to in NPR's report, which states political activists and extremists on both the right and left are worried the other side will somehow steal the election. It's true. They are both worried. But one fear is reality-based, and the other isn't. Shouldn't that, you know, count for something? This is how the political scientist Norm Ornstein arrived at his maxim. A balanced treatment of an unbalanced phenomenon distorts reality. Again, what self-respecting journalist would not side with depicting the world the way it is? Well, take that NPR journalist conforming to house style in which truth-seeking is mixed with refuge-seeking and refuge-seeking often provides the frame due to institutional caution, misplaced priorities, and internalized criticism from an aggressive right. If we trace refuge-seeking behavior in the press back to its origins in the previous century, we find two main tributaries, a commercial motive, to include as many people as possible, and avoid upsetting portions of the audience, which rose up as newspapers consolidated, and the professionalism of what had once been a working-class trade, which put a premium on sounding detached and telling the story from a position above the struggling partisans. Closer to our own time came a third pressure, the right's incredibly successful campaign to intimidate journalists by complaining endlessly about liberal bias. Brian Butler of Crooked Media wrote uh, recently, Some things have changed. Decades of right-wing smears have driven the vast majority of conservative Americans away from mainstream news outlets into a cocoon of right-wing propaganda. Those mainstream outlets have responded by loading panels and contributor mastheads with Republican operatives or committed movement conservatives chasing baseless stories to avoid accusations of bias adhering stubbornly to indefensible assumptions of false balance, subverting the truth to lazy he-said-she-said dichotomies. None of it can or will appease their right-wing critics, who don't mean to influence the media, but mean to delegitimize it. None of it has drawn Fox News viewers and Breitbart readers back to the market for real news. The right has its own media ecosystem now. As the GOP becomes more devoted to white nationalism and voter suppression, it makes less sense for the public service press to chase that core audience or heed its complaints about bias. Um, Butler and I are making the same point about mainstream journalists. These are people on the right who want to destroy your institution, guys. It's time you started acting accordingly. Making it harder to vote and harder to understand what the party is for, are parts of the same project. Inviting a Republican onto a reputable news show to claim Republicans support pre-existing conditions protections doesn't offer viewers the Republican position. It offers them a lie. The choice is between truth-seeking and refuge-seeking behavior. That confrontation is coming, whether journalists realize it or not. Even if Trump is gone... A minority party with unpopular positions has to attack the reality-based press and try to misrepresent itself through that press to voters. This has been true for a long time. My advice? There isn't any refuge anyway, so you might as well shoot 
for truth. Thank you for listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. And remember, if you want to see the world for how it actually is, all you have to do is simply 